Hey, I'm Jess. And I'm Kat. And here's another reason to stay inside. What's poppin', homebodies? How was your week, Kat? I've had a crazy week. Um, My husband and I actually bought our first house. So this is the first podcast from the new crib. Yeah. First of many. All of them, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) We haven't even released any yet, but... (laughs) Ayo. Um, Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about the Moore murderers. The Moore murderers. The the Moore or the Moore's murders. (laughs) Oh. Okay. Yeah, so when I was trying to figure out what to cover this week, I was like thinking... And then it just kind of came to me when I was, like, reading a book. I was reading a book called Girl A by Abigail Dean, which is a great book. If you haven't read it, go read it. Um, And in there's, like, a scene in the book where um, she was talking about this party where, like, people would dress up as felons, which sounds hella interesting. Sounds a little, like, <laughs> crazy. Like, okay. Yeah. Not at my house. Anyways. <laughs> and <laughs> one of the people at the party were dressed as Ian Brady. And I was like, why do I remember that name? And then I thought of it. I listened to Morbid Podcast, which is also amazing. Go check it out if you have not. Because they're amazing. Yes. Um, And Elena was talking about Ian Brady and his accomplice, Myra Hindley. And then that case had always kind of stuck with me. So I was like, okay, maybe that's a sign I should do it. (laughs) And here we go with the third podcast. And here we go. Okay, so the structure of this one is I'm going to talk about Ian and his life growing up and then Myra and her life growing up and then when they meet and then everything that ensues after that. Cool? Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. (laughs) So Ian Duncan Stewart was born in Glasgow, Scotland on January 2nd, 1938 to Maggie Stewart, who was an unmarried tea room waitress. No one really knows the identity of his dad, but Maggie claimed that it was a reporter who had passed away before Ian was even born. Okay, so grew up without a dad? Yeah. Gotcha. So um, Maggie was finding it very difficult to support herself, let alone a little boy, so she she was forced to give Ian to a local couple, Mary and John Sloan. Though his name was changed to Ian Sloan, his mother kept in contact with him throughout his childhood. Okay, so not there, but there. Yes. Yeah. Brady was super smart growing up. He loved the outdoors and was accepted into a school called Shawlands Academy for above average pupils. There, Brady's behavior started worsening, so much so that he appeared twice before a juvenile court for housebreaking. Oh. oh. <laughs> and he was a teenager. Yeah, casual. Um <laughs> He left the academy when he was 15 and then took a job at a shipyard. Nine months later, he began working as a butcher's messenger boy. So he was, like, kind of job hopping. Okay, yeah. Like, odd job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brady dated, even had a girlfriend named Evelyn Grant, but their relationship ended when he threatened her with a knife after she went to a dance with another boy. I mean, yeah, that would probably end my relationship with somebody, too. Um, Yeah. It's fine. Jealousy at his finest, I guess. (laughs) Brady appeared in court again with nine charges against him and was placed on probation on the condition that he lived with his mom again. I guess they were hoping that that would, like, help his situation. Oh, you're talking about living with his birth mom? Yeah. Oh. With Maggie. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. (laughs) Um... 
by that time, Maggie had moved to Manchester and married an Irish Irish fruit merchant named Patrick Brady. Okay. And Ian obviously took his name. His last name. I see. Okay. Ian Brady. Yes. Yes. Within a year of moving in with his mom, he was caught with a bag full of lead seals that he had stolen. But because he was still under 18, he was sent to a youth detention center for two years. Lead seals. Lead a, seals, man. What a thing to steal. I mean, I feel like today it would be like laptops or iPods, but... Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Released on November 14th, 1957, Brady returned to Manchester where he jumped from job to job until 1959 when he was offered a clerical job at a wholesale chemical distribution company. His colleagues described him as quiet, punctual, but very short-tempered. Okay, yep. Okay, and now we're going to switch over to Myra, a.k.a. the most evil woman in Britain. I, was about, I thought you were about to say the world, and I was like, mm. In Britain, <laughs> In <homie>. Britain. <laughs> Um, Myra Hindley was born in Crumpsall on July 23rd, 1942, to parents Bob and Nellie Hindley. Her father served with the Parachute Regiment in the World War II. He was, unfortunately, an abusive alcoholic, verbally and physically. Um, Their living situation was not great. Hindley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents, and after her sister was born, she was sent to live with her grandmother. Oh. Yeah. But still, like, had constant communication and contact with her parents. Okay. Yeah. Her not Um, parents, but, like, got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Myra was eight years old, she ran to her father with blood-soaked, scratched-up cheeks that had been done by a male classmate of hers. Her father basically was like, you need to stick up for yourself and retaliate. (laughs) And um, that resulted in her punching the boy repeatedly. Oh. She, I mean, don't get me even... wrong. Like, I, you know, <laughs> I believe in, you know, don't throw the first punch, but throw the last. But, like, um, <laughs> with To an reason, extent. Yeah. To an extent. Um, she even ended up writing later that she, quote, scored her first victory at eight years old. Okay. All right. So this is how her mind is. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, so I see um, I see the pattern emerging. I see. Yeah. Hold on, I need some water. Bloop, 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 bloop. Um, in June 1957, her friend named Michael Higgins had invited her to go swimming, but she ended up going somewhere else with other friends. Higgins ended up drowning, and Hindley blamed herself. After his funeral, Hindley decided to join the Catholic Church. She took the confirmation name Veronica and took her first communion in November 1958. Oh, that's... Just a casual bullet point. <laughs> yeah, that's so sad. I mean, I feel like that would take a, you know, take a toll on anybody's life, like when your best friend yeah. dies. Especially if you yeah. feel responsible. Like... Right. Yeah, okay. Hindley ended up getting a job as a junior clerk at a local electrical engineering firm and then at age 17 she became engaged but shortly called it off after deciding that the man was immature and unable to provide her with the life she wanted at 17 okay at 17 (laughs) are you trying to think of all the other 17 year olds that would be mature enough to provide for anybody but okay yeah (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know if he was 17 but oh i guess that's fair okay yeah but engaged at 17. What a wild right. thought. Okay. Uh, so this next section is called Not So Meet Cute. <laughs> That's so intriguing, un- <laughs> but like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll understand why in a minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. In January 1961, 18-year-old Hindley became a typist at Millwards, where Brady had been working. She quickly became obsessed with him, despite learning that he had a criminal record. She even started a diary, and though she was dating other men at the time, there are entries that describe her fascination with him. 
including the first time he spoke to her, which was on July 27, 1961. Oh, an important date. The first time that he said hello to me. (laughs) (laughs) On December 22nd, Brady asked her out. Um, He was fascinated by Nazis, and for their first date, they saw a movie about the Nuremberg trials. Oh. I feel like that just sets the whole relationship up for some weird stuff. But, like, okay. I mean, we'll get into it. (laughs) Um, They did this a lot, usually ending at Hindley's house to drink German wine. Brady would give her reading material, and they spent their breaks at work reading to each other from accounts of Nazi atrocities. Recipe for disaster. Mm Mm-hmm. Henley also started changing her appearance at this time by bleaching her hair blonde, applying thick red lipstick, wearing risque clothing such as high boots, short skirts, and leather jackets. I knew the blonde hair part had to be coming. Yeah, she's like not cute even (laughs) after all of this. So (laughs) I'll post pictures on our Instagram. Oh. But yeah. Um, in a letter she wrote to her friend, she wrote of her obsession with Brady and then mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by him. Later, yeah, I know. Later, she asked her friend to destroy the letter. And I'm guessing because we have accounts of this letter, the friend did not destroy the letter? I would assume, like... I don't know, it doesn't come up later, like... Oh. Just, yeah. just, just note, uh, he drugs her casually. It, yeah, okay. I don't know if that's actually true. A lot of what she says is bullshit, but I wouldn't doubt it. Because they're both kind of assholes. Gotcha. Not kind of, they are assholes. Yeah, like, actually the deep, in the deepest sense <laughs> of the word. I'm trying to be nice, but they are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the couple frequent, frequently went to the library borrowing books on philosophy, crime, and torture. We all love a smart criminal. Instead of fantasizing about their future together, traveling, you know, like normal couples, they instead fantasized about robbing banks and, quote, committing the perfect murder. Oh. <laughs> Hindley hired a van in which the couple planned their bank robberies. They never ended up performing bank robberies, but they planned them out. Okay. That feels very, like, Chuck and Blair, but, like, to an extreme. Like, the most extreme. Yeah. Also, Ian is nothing like Chuck, so... (laughs) You're like, I'll defend Chuck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Myra also befriended the president of the... I'm gonna try to say this right. Cheadle. I don't know if that's right. Cheadle Rifle Club. And eventually arranged for her to buy a 22 rifle. She also managed to buy a Webley 45 and a Smith and Wesson 38 from other members of the club, which like is surprising because the guy that she bought the 22 from said she was a terrible shot. Like she could not shoot for shit. <laughs> so let's give her a gun. Yeah, makes sense. Totally. Um, their plans for robbery came to nothing, but they became very interested in photography. And this is about to get cringy. Um, they took photos that would be considered explicit and eventually would take pictures in places where they buried bodies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. This next section is called Utter Chaos. <laughs> I have to <laughs> mention my subtitles. <laughs> Okay. Hindley claimed that Brady talked about committing the perfect murder in July 1963 and often spoke to her about Meyer Levin's Compulsion, which is a book that describes two young men from well-to-do families who attempt to commit the perfect murder of a twelve of a 12-year-old boy, ugh, excuse me, of a 12-year-old boy and escape the death penalty because of their age. Uh, I was but, like, I guess nobody's going to be able to see my face. My jaw's just open. <laughs> like Yeah. Uh, By June 1963, Brady had moved in with Hindley at her grandmother's house. Okay. Nice. 
And on July 12th, Brady had said it was go time. They hatched a plan that involved combing the streets and sending each other a signal when they found their next victim. Myra would drive her van around while he followed in a motorcycle. And when he found someone that he wanted to attack, essentially, he would flash his headlight at her. Oh my gosh. So like no motive at all. Just like, that's the one. Yeah. Total Just like random on the street. Yeah. Oh, that's terrifying. And they're all kids. Yeah. Uh, 17 and under. Yep. Okay. Um, Sometime after 7.30 p.m., he signaled Myra to stop for 16-year-old Pauline Reed, who had attended school with Myra's younger sister, Maureen. Myra offered her a ride and asked for her help in searching Saddleworth Moor for an expensive lost glove. And you'll see that she does the same thing over and over again. Like, help me look for a lost glove. They're like, okay. Oh. Sure, why not? Um, Reed agreed. And when Brady arrived, um, Myra told Pauline that he was helping with the search. There are different accounts between Myra and Ian. So Myra says that she stayed in the van while Brady took took Pauline into the moor. And Ian says, no, she was like there the whole time. Okay. Yeah, you'll see this a lot. Okay. Okay. She's full of bullshit. So she's like a compulsive liar. I mean, obviously, it just goes with the personality type. She tries, yes, she tries to play the victim. I see. Okay. Yes. Henley claimed that she waited in the van while Brady tucked Pauline into the moor. After 30 minutes, Brady returned and brought brought Henley to where Pauline was, like, laying dead. Okay. Her clothes were disheveled and she had been nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat. So extreme that the collar of her coat and her necklace were, like, inside her throat. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Mm -hmm. When Hindley asked Brady if he had raped her, his response was, quote, of course I did. That's terrible. Of course I did? Sorry. I should have said trigger warning before this, but, yes, this is a big bummer. There is rape involved. I apologize for not saying that sooner. Of course I did. Quote, of course I did. That's disgusting. Okay. Like I said, in Brady's account of what happened, Hindley was not only present for the attack, but also participated in the sexual assault. I am again disgusted. Okay. Yes. Pauline's then boyfriend at the time, David Smith, um who had three criminal convictions for minor crimes was questioned, but cleared of any involvement in her death. Yeah. I feel like he'd even somebody who does minor crimes would be like, peace out homie. When it came to anything crazy like this. Yeah. Yeah. But what's wild is David Smith comes into play later. Okay. Yeah. So hold on to that little tidbit. Um, Their next victim, John Kilbride, was killed on November 23rd. Brady and Hindley offered Kilbride a ride home from the market, saying that his parents might worry that he was out so late. They promised him a bottle of alcohol, specifically sherry. Of course. Like... Yeah. Okay. Once, Once John Kilbride was in the car, Brady said that they would have to make a detour to their house for the sherry. Then Brady suggested another detour, this time to go search for a glove that Myra had lost in the moor. Yeah. When they got to the moor, Brady took Kilbride with him while Hindley stayed in the car. He sexually assaulted him and tried to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade before strangling him with what's believed to be a shoelace. Oh, my gosh. A huge search was done... For Kilbride, with over 700 statements taken, 500 missing posters printed, and 2,000 volunteers searching for him. Oh my gosh, because this is the second one, like, just a kid, mm-hmm. just up and gone. Yeah. 
Oh, I bet the community is just freaking out at this point. Yeah. Hinley rented a vehicle a week after Kilbride had gone missing, and again on December 21st, to make sure the burial sites at Saddleworth Moor had not been disturbed. In 1964, she bought a minivan, so she switched cars. Okay. Keith Bennett disappeared on June 16, 1964. He was 12 years old. Hindley had asked for help loading boxes into her van and said she would drive him home after. Brady ended up being in the back of the van, and they did the same thing, went to the moor looking for that damn glove. Like, if somebody said, I need your help looking for a glove, I feel like I'd be like, no. I, I'm yeah. more inclined to help you look for your lost puppy, but definitely your own glove. A, like, a that's dog? on you. Absolutely. <laughs> like, a stupid glove. A glove? That, no thanks. That's gone. Yeah. Like, buy yourself a new pair. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, after 30 minutes, Brady returned alone and told Henley that he sexually assaulted Bennett and strangled him with a string. Bennett's stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect and was taken in for questioning four separate times in the two years following his disappearance. That's terrible. Yeah. Myra's sister, Maureen, ended up marrying David Smith on August 15, 1964. Maureen was also seven months pregnant at the time, and they moved into his father's house. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's bring a baby into the mix. Yeah. Hold on. He's still in the thing. Hold on. <clears throat> the day after they got married, <laughs> the day after they got married, Brady, Brady suggested that the four of them take a day trip to Windermere. This would be the first time that Smith and Brady had met, and they were both immediately like impressed with each other. Ew. Yeah. They. It, yeah. It's like a bromance. I don't know. They discussed society, distribution of wealth, and, you know, the possibility of robbing a bank. You, you know, I don't think that should be a casual conversation, but... no, I mean, nobody's asking me, but that should not be a casual conversation. <laughs> For real. Uh, in 1964, Myra, her, her grandmother, and Ian were rehoused to 16 Wardle Brook Avenue. There, Brady and Hindley became friendly with 11-year-old neighbor Patricia Hodges. Hodges would eventually accompany the two on their trips to Saddleworth Moor to collect peat, which is like turf. Like, yeah, I don't know what for. Okay. For their garden, I guess. I really don't know. Okay. I thought um, turf was a newer thing, but okay. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> The couple never ended up harming her because she lived near them, and they felt that they would probably be investigated if anything did happen to her. Gotcha. Yeah, so, like, don't... (laughs) I was going to say don't shit in your backyard, but now I'm going to cut that out. Oh, good. Luna's barking. (laughs) (laughs) Luna's like, don't shit in your backyard! (laughs) Don't do it! (laughs) Oh, my God. On December 26th, which is Boxing Day in England. An important day. 19, yeah, 1964. Hindley handed off her grandmother to a relative's house and refused to let her back into the house that night. On the same day, Leslie Ann Downey disappeared. And despite a giant search, she was not found. The following day, Hindley brought her grandmother back into the home. And I'll tell you a little bit what's happened with Leslie. So that day, Boxing Day, Brady and Hindley were at a fair and noticed that 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey was alone. They approached her, purposefully dropping some items that they were carrying, and asked her to help take the items to the car. Once at the car, they took, My- they took her to Myra's house. Once at Myra's house, Downey was undressed gagged and forcibly posed for photographs before being raped and killed with string oh poor baby oh yeah. 10 years old like how sick there's i'm gonna mention this later but it was later found that there was a 13 minute recording audio recording of like Hindley and brady 
during this time that she was being tortured. Oh my gosh. That's so yeah. sick and twisted and like uh, to have that as like a memento is disgusting. They're sick fucks. Yeah. I'm hoping this ends with and then they died terribly. <laughs> yes. We'll get there. But yeah. <laughs> Hindley claimed that she had gone to fill a bath for Downey and found her dead when she returned. But Brady stated that Hindley had been the one to kill her. So again, just these mixed stories between two, the only two people that were there. Okay. Yeah. The following morning, they took her body to Saddleworth Moor and buried her in a shallow grave, naked with her clothes at her feet. Like, they couldn't have even redressed her just for the decency of, like... Yeah, no. Ugh. They don't give a shit, like... On the evening of October 6, 1965, Hindley drove Brady to his train station where she waited in the car for Brady to choose their next victim. Brady appeared in the company of 17-year-old Edward Evans to whom he introduced Hadley as his sister. Brady later claimed that he picked up Evans for a sexual encounter. Okay, you. Yeah, They drove to their home and drank some wine. Brady told Henley to get her brother-in-law, David Smith. Henley Henley returned with Smith and told him to wait outside for her signal, which was, of course, a flashing light. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door and was met by Brady, who asked if he had come for the, quote, miniature wine bottles. Brady told Smith to wait in the kitchen for the bottles, and he later told police, quote, I waited about a minute or two, then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman high-pitched. Then the screams carried on, one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him, very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the young lad's legs. The lad was still screaming. Ian had a hatchet in his hand. He was holding it above his head, and he hit the lad on the left side of the head with the hatchet. I heard the blow. It was a terrible, hard blow. It sounded horrible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He then then watched Brady throttle Evans with the length of an electrical cord. Brady ended up spraining his ankle in the struggle. Fucking idiot. Smith was unable to carry his body to the car on his own, so they wrapped him in plastic sheeting and put him in the spare bedroom. I will let you react now. (laughs) I wish, oh my, like, I just, like, how to raise eyebrows, drop, draw, like, what do you even, and for somebody to just, (laughs) the scene is crazy. Yes. The fact that it actually, like, happens. Okay. Yeah. I know. The fact that this actually happened and was real, like. Yeah. It's crazy. It's terrible. Yes. Horrendous, actually, but yes. Good word. Thank you. Um, Smith agreed to return the next morning with his baby stroller to assist with transporting the body. Oh, that's so disgusting. But he arrived home that night around 3 a.m., asked his wife to make him some tea, which he drank before throwing up and then telling her what happened. Which, like, same. They both... (laughs) I can't keep secrets from my husband. Like, oh. I guess in this case, wife. Yeah. Um, They then decided as a couple that they would go to the police in the morning. At 6 a.m., Smith armed himself with a screwdriver and a bread knife in case Brady were to intercept him, and he called the police from a phone box, which is like a phone booth. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he was then picked up by police from the phone booth and taken to the police station where he had told them everything. Police superintendent Bob Talbot wore a bread delivery man's costume over his uniform and went to Hindley's house, which like, what a day to have a right. bread delivery man. Do 
police officers just like have like casual like oh no this is actually my job like disguise <laughs> like what okay it's very like 50s 60s like true very very true anyways um so myra answered the door and uh bob asked if her husband was home but when she denied that she had a husband or that a man was in the house he identified himself as police <laughs> She then led him to the living room where Brady was laying on a couch writing his employer about his ankle injury. What's it going to say? Like, oh, sorry, like I was gardening this weekend and tripped. Like, that's <laughs> just not okay. Okay. I have no idea. Uh, Talbot told them that he was investigating an act of violence involving gu- guns that was reported to have taken place the previous evening. Hindley denied that there had been any violence and allowed police to look around the house. When they got to the locked spare bedroom, keep in mind his body's still in the house. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When they got to the locked spare bedroom, they asked Hindley for the key. She said it was at her office, but Brady told her to hand it over. Brady was like, fuck you. Just give it to them. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, When police... uh... Yeah, I know. When police returned to the living room, they arrested Brady on suspicion of murder. Just Brady? Well, because David had only seen Brady with the hatchet and striking him. And strangling him. So, like, he doesn't even know the whole story. Okay, I see, I see, okay. Yeah. Hindley was not arrested until October 11th and was charged with charged as an accessory to the murder of Evans and he and she was remanded at HM prison Risley as police were searching the house they found an exercise book with the name John Kilbride inside which made them suspect that Brady and Hindley had been involved in his and other children's disappearances while in custody Brady told police that he and Evans had fought but insisted that Smith had murdered him and that Myra was only doing what she was told. Really? Mm-hmm. Smith told police that Brady had asked him to return anything considered incriminating. And once these items were in his possession, Brady pick, packed them into suitcases. Though Smith was unsure what Brady did with the suitcases, he told police that he, quote, had a thing about railway stations. A search of left luggage offices turned up suitcases at Manchester Central Railway Station on October 15th. The claim ticket was later found in Hindley's prayer book. Good Catholic woman, huh? I was about to say, in the prayer book, what a, what a genuine place to put that. Mm-hmm. Inside the suitcases were costumes, notes, photographs, negatives. Of these were nine pornographic photos taken of Downey, naked with a scarf tied across her mouth. Oh. Yeah. There's also a 13-minute audio tape recording of a girl identifying herself as Leslie Ann Downey, screaming, crying, and pleading to be allowed to return home to her mom. Oh. Downey's mother later confirmed that the recording was of her daughter. They made her mother listen to that? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely terrible. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. Like, I cannot even imagine. That just gave me, like, goosebumps. That's awful. That's... Yeah. Yeah. The police talked to 12-year-old Patricia Hodges, and she was able to point out their favorite sites in the moor as she had accompanied them many times before. Police immediately began searching the area. On October 16th, they found an arm bone protruding from the peat that was identified as Downey, whose body was still visually identifiable. Her mother was able to also identify the clothing, which had been buried in the grave. Poor, poor, they're poor parents. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All this identifying, like, hey, this terrible thing happened to your kid, but I'm going to need you to, like, verify this is your kid. Yeah. I literally cannot, I can't imagine like I, therapy I would need after that. Like, oh my god, yeah. I'd probably just die of sadness. Like Yeah. Don't mind me. Yeah. Depression for the rest of my life. Yeah, for real. On October 21st, they found the decomposed body of John Kilbride. 
who had to be identified by his clothing. That same day, Brady and Tinley appeared at Hyde Magistrate's Court charged with Downey's murder. Police kept searching with the inclination that there would be more bodies, but because winter was setting in, the search was called off in November. By by December 2nd, Brady was charged with the murders of Kilbride, Downey, and Evans. Hindley had only been charged with the murders of Downey and Evans while being an accessory to the murder of Kilbride. So she still got away a little bit. I guess not completely knowing all that she had part in, but... Yeah. The victim, nonetheless. Right. In one of them, at least. Um, So, during this whole thing, Hindley had a dog named Puppet, whom she took with her almost everywhere. In the suitcases found at the railway station, there were many photos of Hindley and Puppet on the moors, some being on the sides of the graves. I will post some of these... On Instagram. So y'all can check it out. Um, But in order for police to date the photos taken, they had a vet surgeon examine the dog for his age. The exam required the dog to be put under, and he unfortunately did not come out of it. This keeps getting worse and worse. I know. I know. Um, the poor innocent dog. I know. I know can't control your owners or you can't uh honestly i wonder if he saw anything like you know what i mean yeah. like it's not the dog's fault i know the I dog know. had to pay i know okay so trial trial began on april 19 1966 and lasted for 14 days both pleaded not guilty. Brady testified for over eight hours. Hindley testified for six. Brady admitted to striking Evans with the axe, but claimed that someone else had ultimately killed him, pointing to the pathologist's statement that his death had been, quote, accelerated. <laughs> pointing to the pathologist's statement that his death had been, quote, accelerated by strangulation. Henley denied any knowledge that the photos taken on the moor had been taken near graves of their victims. Of course. The tape recording of Downey on which the voices of Brady and Henley were audible was played in open court. Oh Hin- my god. Yeah. Henley admitted that her attitude towards Don- Downey was cruel, but claimed that it was because she was afraid someone might hear her screaming. Hindley also claimed that she was downstairs when Downey was being undressed, that she was looking out the window when the photographs were being taken, and that when Downey was being strangled, she was running a bath. Okay. Okay. No. So you're not she only... She just wasn't no. a part of it. She's yeah, like, like... I did... I know bad I'm like, I'm happening. like in the house, yeah. but I don't know what's happening. <laughs> oh, that's just disgusting. Like, I would have been like even more mad that she's like acting like... Oh, but I wasn't, like, a part of it. I was just a part of it. <laughs> like, Yeah. She's infuriating. Yeah, that's very, just, that's a good, yeah, infuriating. Yes. On May 6th, after deliberating for a little over two hours, the jury found Brady guilty of all three murders, and Hindley was guilty for the murders of Downey and Evans. As the death penalty had been abolished, the judge sentenced them to life in prison. Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, and Hindley was given two plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Brady in the knowledge that he had killed John Kilbride. Brady was taken to HM Prison Durham, and Hindley was taken to HM Prison Holloway. And now we're going to move on to their life in prison. Oh, Um, In 1985, Brady told a journalist working for the Sunday People that he had killed Reed and Bennett, which police had already suspected. They reopened investigation and resumed their search in the moors using the photos to help them identify any possible burial sites. In November 1986, Bennett's mother wrote Hindley begging to know what had happened to her son. That's awful. Hindley was, quote, genuinely moved by this letter, but never responded. 
Police visited her a few days after she got the letter, and though she refused involvement in the killing, she agreed to help by looking at the photos and maps to try to identify the spots she had visited with Ian. Which I think she's doing this just to, like, relive it. Yeah. Like, just to, like, feel, like, still a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, she likes to be included, but not be included. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I was there, but, like, I wasn't doing it. I was there, but I wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She showed particular in- interest in photos around Holland Brown Knoll and Shiny Brook, but said it was impossible to be sure of the locations without actually visiting the moor. Okay. I said, in parentheses, I said, insert eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> like, for real. Like, I know oh, that's just such a load of crap. Yeah. On December 16, 1986, Henley made the first of two visits to assist police in the search of the moor. She found it difficult to connect what she saw to her memories, which is bullshit, and was distracted by the helicopters flying overhead. Yeah, just making sure you don't run, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> on December 19th, David Smith spent four hours on the moor helping police identify areas to be searched. On February 10th, 1987... Hindley confessed to involvement in all five murders, but this was not made public for more than a month. The recording of her formal statement was over 17 hours long. Oh my gosh. In this recording, she stated she was never present when the killings took place. Of course. One of the, de- one of the detectives said he felt he had, quote, Witnessed a great performance rather than a genuine confession. Yeah, more of an act than a... Yeah. Like a, I want to confess what I've done. Around the same time, Bennett's mother sent Hindley another letter pleading for her assistance in finding the body of her son. Hindley responded finally, thanking her for both letters, and said that she didn't write back after her first letter because of the negative publicity surrounding it. Okay, she's worried about her rep. Ma'am, you're in prison for killing children. For real. She also said that if she had written 14 years earlier, she would have confessed and helped the police. Okay, like you're really just tormenting this mother. Yes. Whose child you killed. Okay. Yep. Hindley made her second visit to the moor in March 1987. She confirmed to police that the two areas in which they were concentrating their efforts which is Holland Brown Knoll and the Hoe Grain, were correct, although she was unable to locate either of the graves. Later... Literally just take me to where I want to go. Later, she remembered that Reed was sitting at one point next to her on a patch of grass, and she could see the rocks of Holland Brown Knoll against the night sky. On July 1st, After more than 100 days of searching, they found Reed's body three feet below the surface, 100 yards from where Downey's body had been found. Another shallow grave. After hearing this, Brady made a formal confession, saying he would also help in their search. He was taken to the moor on July 3rd, but seemed to be confused with where he was, blaming the changes in the intervening years. On December 8th, he was taken to the moor a second time and claimed to have located Bennett's burial site, but the body was never found. Soon after this, Brady wrote a letter to a BBC reporter giving, him some, giving them some sketchy details of five additional deaths that he claimed to have taken part in. Oh my gosh. Hindley said that she knew nothing about these killings. So, Is it possible you think that he actually did these on his own? Uh, no. I think okay. he's... I I don't know, but I personally, like, gut feeling, think he's bullshitting. Like, just, like, trying to add... Just trying calories. to add, yeah. Oh, yep. disgusting. Although Brady and Hindley had confessed to the other two murders, the director of public prosecutions decided that nothing would be gained of a fur of a further trial as both were already serving life sentences. Which I think that kind of sucks for their families. Yeah, like, there's no, like, even though, yes, like, nothing more can be done, I guess, to them technically, but, like, there's no justice with or my closure. child's name on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. In 2003, the police launched Operation Meta and searched the moor again for Bennett's body. In mid-2009, the GMP said they had exhausted all avenues in the search for Bennett. And so they just completely stopped searching for Bennett? Mm-hmm. In 2017, the police asked a court to order two locked briefcases owned by Brady to be opened, arguing that they might contain clues for the location of Bennett's body, but the application was denied on the grounds that no prosecution was likely to result, which is so sad because if there's anything in there... Anything, like that, on the off chance. Yeah, that relates to these to two his... people who are spending life in prison and then some. Yeah. Like... That's, that's I just that's feel awful. bad for Bennett's mom. Yeah. That's like, just awful. That's terrible. Ugh. Okay. During incarceration, Brady originally stayed in solitary confinement of his own request at HM Prison Durham. He spent 19 years in mainstream prisons before being diagnosed as a psychopath in November 1985 when he was sent to the High Security Park Lane Hospital, which is a mental hospital. Sounds like where he belongs. Yes. He made it clear that he never wanted to be released. Brady eventually became the longest-serving prisoner in England and Wales. Oh, wow. Yeah. In in 1999, Brady went on a hunger strike, but because prisoners being treated for mental disorders are not allowed to refuse treatment under the Mental Health Act of 1983. He was force-fed and transferred to another hospital for tests after he fell ill. (laughs) He was like, I'm gonna not eat, and they were like, haha, you can't. (laughs) Yeah, like, no, actually, you're going to eat. Yeah. Brady sent Bennett's mother a letter in 2005 where he claimed he could take the police within 20 yards of her son's body, but the authorities wouldn't allow it. He did not refer to Bennett by name and did not claim he would take investigators directly to the grave, but spoke of the clarity of his recollections. That's just awful. Shithead. This poor mom. Like, I can't even imagine what she had gone through, through all of this. Like. Yeah. Uh, good news. Um, after receiving end-of-life care, Brady died of restrictive pulmonary disease at Ashworth Hospital, which was Park Lane. They just changed the name later on. On May 15, 2017. Love to hear it. He was cremated without a ceremony, and his ashes were disposed of at sea during the night. Not at the dumpster behind, like, a pet place? Like- I, Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, you only belong in the dumpster, because that's where what you are. You're trash. But, or in, okay. like, a pile of manure. Yeah. <laughs> Just... <laughs> that's where your body belongs. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Hindley unsuccessfully appealed her conviction immediately after trial. She and Brady wrote letters to each other until 1971 when she ended their relationship as she had apparently fallen in love with one of her prison warders, Patricia Cairns. Oh. Cairns was caught aiding in planning an escape for Hindley and was sentenced to six years in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Downey's mother was at the center of a campaign to ensure that Hindley was never released from prison until her death in 1999. She regularly gave television and newspaper interviews whenever Henley's release was rumored. Which good for her. Yeah. Home Secretary. Yeah. Home Secretary David Waddington imposed a whole life tariff on Henley in July 1990 after she had confessed to being more involved in the murders than she had pre- previously admitted. Good. In 1998, she was moved to a medium security HM prison high point. Between December 1997 and March 2000, Hindley made three separate appeals against her life tariff, claiming she was a reformed woman and no longer a danger to society. These were rejected by courts. Good. I love to hear when the courts are doing the right thing. <laughs> On November 15, 2002, Hindley, age 60, died from bronchial pneumonia at West Suffolk... Sup... I don't know how to say it. West... Suffolk. <laughs> Su- Suffolk? Yeah, Suffolk Hospital. Did I say that right? Suff- yeah, 
Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Four months later, her ashes were spread by her ex-partner, Patricia Cairns, less than 10 miles from Saddleworth Moor. Which, fuck you for doing that. Yeah, again, I believe a dumpster behind a disgusting... Manure. Stray manure. like, just... Yeah. No. Yeah, or a dump. I'm just glad that, I mean, they didn't go peacefully in their sleep or something. Like, it was like, nope. Yeah. You did have to suffer at least a little bit. Yeah. Um, so... If you're wondering what happened to the victim's parents, I have a couple bullets. Reed's mother was admitted to Springfield Mental Hospital in Manchester. She was present under heavy sedation at the funeral of her daughter on August 7, 1987. Oh. Five years after their son was murdered, Sheila and Patrick Kilbride divorced, which is common. Um, Downey's mother died in 1999 from cancer of the liver. The doctor said that the stress of ensuring Hindley remained in prison contributed to the severity of her illness. That's terrible. Bennett's mother continued to visit Saddleworth Moor, where her son's body is still supposedly buried and unfound. She died in August 2012. Yep. His body has still never been found. Yeah, sad. But that's the case of the more murders. Oh my gosh, all of the more murders. Yes. Thankfully, the shitheads died. But. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and in prison, like. <laughs> yeah. They never got to yeah. be out again. I guess there, there's any justice, it's that. Mm hmm. Not that I feel as though that's justice. That's just the justice system. Yeah, I definitely agree with that statement. Follow us on Instagram at stayinsidepodcast. Email us at stayinsidepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at stayinsidepod. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. We will have another podcast. (laughs) We will. We're going to keep it going. (laughs) We're going to get this down. We will. I promise. Somehow, yes. (laughs) All right. Okay. Bye.